All right, well, good morning, y'all. For those of you that were stunned by the reminder announcement that today is Potluck Sunday and you're currently on Uber Eats or DoorDash, the church address is 1615 Virginia Street, Snohomish. There. A little help from your pal, Carl. We're glad to have you uh, with us as we continue through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we started getting into Jesus' parables. And this week, we continue with three consecutive parables that Jesus offers to his disciples. And each one of these three parables, they work together to give us a big picture of what God thinks about the kingdom that he's coming to introduce. We need to remind ourselves, though, that Jesus is now working with a group of individuals that have never seen or encountered or heard anyone like Jesus before. And Jesus is, is beginning to establish a new kind of community as he works with these disciples. The disciples very often just don't get it. And so Jesus shares with them truths through the telling of these short stories. But they're all geared to reveal the specific nature of God's coming kingdom. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, we need to kind of establish what it is that we're talking about when we say that. Because sometimes we just kind of throw that phrase out there, but don't really know what it means. When we're talking about Jesus introducing the kingdom of God, he's talking about the overriding ruling presence of God in all things. And specifically taking up the ruling qualities over individuals' minds, hearts, and souls. Prior to Jesus showing up, there was 400 years of silence. There was no prophet in Israel. There is a promised Messiah that we read about in the Old Testament who was promised over and over and over again. And the prophets kept pointing to that. And then there is 400 years of absolute nothingness. Jesus emerges on the scene. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. And Jesus begins his ministry by reminding his people they don't know that they're his people yet, but reminding his people the promises of God. And Jesus makes a distinction between what his main objective is. His primary purpose was to come and to introduce the kingdom of God. And he makes that clear in other places as he's doing healings and people are lining up for the healings. He's saying, that's not necessarily what I came here for. I'm, I'm capable, but that's not necessarily what I came for. But instead, I came to introduce the kingdom of God. We're going to go backwards just a few chapters to Mark chapter 1. Mark records this, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was Jesus's mission. It was to introduce others to the kingdom of God and bring them to a place where they would repent and believe the gospel as Jesus presented it recognizing that some of these concepts would have been challenging to have heard. 
Jesus starts to illustrate things through the use of parables. And there's three parables that happen in quick succession, starting in verse 21 of chapter 4. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Three parables, three big ideas. Here's the first one from this first parable, that the kingdom of God is light and it makes hidden things visible. What specifically was the light, the kingdom of God, going to make visible? It was going to make visible the sin that existed in the world and the hardness of hearts of mankind. A couple of Sundays ago, we finally got out of that horrific time of year where the sun goes down like at 2.30 in the afternoon. And fortunately, there are wise people out there that are working fervently to abolish that from ever happening ever again. I support them. There have been studies that have in an effort to support this idea of just getting rid of that altogether that have examined crime during those darker months. And while nobody's willing to quite say there is a cause-effect relationship, there is a unique correlation that there is an increase in crime during those months where we are watching sunset at a ridiculous hour of the day instead of as late as we're getting it. And that should make good sense. Humankind, we tend to like darkness more than we like light. The human heart is a dark place. And Jesus comes to shine light on that dark place to reveal exactly how dark it is. Now, ultimately, what's the purpose of a lamp? It is to give light. So Jesus' point is pretty clear. You wouldn't bring a lamp into a dark place and then put a basket over it. It defeats the purpose. The purpose of the light was so that it would have an impact. And what's interesting about light, this is according to scientists, you can't actually measure darkness. You can only measure light or the absence of light. The same thing works with cold temperatures. You can't actually measure cold temperatures. You either measure heat or the absence of heat. And Jesus is letting us know that the purpose for why he came was to give light and for us to see how desperately we need him. Now, Jesus' light is different from any other kind of light. It's a light that will never be extinguished. The Gospel of John captures it this way. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I'm asking you to put a pin in your brain real quick. There's a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. I want to tell you about Voltaire, but we're going to come back to him. But I'll tell you this, he was pretty firmly committed to overcoming the light. Spoiler alert, he was not successful. But he's not successful in a really extravagant way, so hang on to your hat, we're going to get there. If the kingdom of God is light, and if the kingdom of God is designed to make things visible... Where do we fit into that? Jesus is teaching his disciples. There is an implicit command that he is giving to his disciples. And we pick up on it today. That we are called to make the light visible. This is what makes Christianity so different from other kinds of you know, worldviews that are out there. We are not a secret society. We don't have special rituals that get you in or out. We don't operate in darkness. We're pretty out there and we're pretty open about who we are and what we teach. Doesn't require a particular person with the right connections to connect you to the church. No, we're just out there with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross to rescue sinners. We're pretty open about that. And we're called as Jesus' followers to make that light visible. Which means we have a responsibility. It is implied in this parable that Jesus is inviting his disciples to make the kingdom of God visible. And if the kingdom of God being visible, or excuse me, if the kingdom of God is about the ruling presence of God over the hearts and souls of mankind, you do the math. What does it mean to make it visible? First, it starts with you taking him seriously at his word and allowing him to transform you and conform you more and more into his image. So that the longer you walk with Jesus, the more like Jesus you become. That you are unafraid to speak the name of Christ to friends, family members, neighbors, strangers. That you point to Christ as being your hope. That you depend on Christ in fervent prayer. That you seek to model your life on the character and the nature of Christ himself. Which means you practice humility, grace, mercy, kindness, forgiveness. This is how we make it visible. This is our objective. This is our mission that Jesus himself has assigned to us. As we become his ambassadors for making the kingdom of God known. Jesus' second parable in this passage starts in verse 26. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. 
This would have been a little bit of a jarring parable for the original hearers. Jesus coming in, saying the kinds of things that he's saying, identifying himself as being the Messiah. And what they were looking for in a Messiah was that somebody who would come in and help them to throw off the shackles of Roman oppression and essentially to start a bit of a revolution. So Jesus, giving this parable, is giving them something the exact opposite. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God grows slowly and mysteriously, quietly, inconspicuously over time. Now, the Gospels don't record for us the objections that the disciples had, but it's likely that they had them. We know from other portions of of history and other portions of the Gospels that there was some among the disciples who were ready to go fight. And now Jesus is saying, well, you know, actually, the way it works is it's like a farmer throwing seed down. He's not even really sure how it grows, which is kind of true. We put seed in the ground. We know eventually, if things work out right, something might spring up. Are we there to actually observe every movement of that seed? No. Now, of course, in our modern times, we've been able to kind of analyze things. and We're able to say, you know, okay, well, this should germinate within 21 days or whatever. But we're not there observing it. And yet it's happening. We're not the ones that are manipulating anything except for maybe water and light. But beyond that, we have zero control over this. And this is kind of a reassuring message for us. That the kingdom of God grows not because we're awesome, but because God is. And that God's got full control over this. We're called to be seed scatterers. God's put it on himself to take the responsibility for growth. The writer, uh, excuse me, Paul in 1 Corinthians wrote this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It's slow. And it happens over time in ways that you can't always perfectly detect. And it doesn't always follow the same pattern. I'm going to give you two examples. Asparagus. Who loves asparagus? Oh, my people. There we go. And an oak tree. Now, asparagus is fascinating because if you were to take just an asparagus seed, and if you were to plant asparagus by seed, not the crowns, not the cheater's way, but just from the actual seed, it will be a full two years before you can expect to have produce that you can actually consume. Now, something will grow, something will take place, but to have it to where you can actually go and get yourself a bunch to grow from seed, from seed, a two-year process. An acorn, you plant it into the ground, it's going to take 30 to 40 years before you have a full-grown tree. What's the difference? The obvious difference is time. But they're actually totally connected to each other. There is no difference. Because mankind cannot, according to conventional means, have any control over the growth of these things. It's God himself who does that growth. 
as God himself who uh, allows that seed to begin to take on life and to spring out of the ground. And maybe some of us are built more like asparagus and within two years or something there. Maybe some of us are built more like an oak tree and it's going to take a while. But there's an encouragement in that too. We may be tempted to think that any of our spiritual output does it have any impact whatsoever? We may begin to question, is this worth it? Some of you that are hearing this, you've been praying for family members that don't yet know Christ for 5, 10, 15, 30 years. And you're wondering, is it ever going to click? Know this, that whatever seems small and ordinary to you may very well have an eternal significance. You just can't see it yet. At our previous field with uh, Village Missions, the church and the parsonage sat on five acres of property. And when, when the church made their arrangement with Village Missions, they stated very clearly that whoever was going to live in the parsonage would then naturally assume responsibility for mowing the five acres of the church and the parsonage. Uh, and so guess who moved into the parsonage? I had to ask the question, is a lawnmower provided? I was told yes. And I thought I'd push a little bit. Is it possibly a riding mower? I was told yes. I'm like, okay. We moved there in February, so it was a couple of weeks before... Uh, a couple of months before I actually had to mow for the very first time. And uh, that was not a short day. And the first couple of times I did it, um, I'm not sure I took it on with as much joy as perhaps I'd been anticipated by others I would take it. But then something clicked. And I grew to love mowing. Because it was the one thing I did each week where I could exert some effort and immediately see the results. Everything else that I did, I'm putting out effort. I have no idea what's going to happen. If anything is going to happen. Some of you may be frustrated with your own spiritual growth. And you're saying to yourself, why can't I get past this? Why is this still a barrier for me? Why is this a hardship? God's kingdom works over time. So be encouraged. Whether you are praying for others in your life or praying for yourself, whatever seems small and ordinary and insignificant likely has an eternal significance that you may not even know about on this side of eternity. Which also means then, Keep going. Paul writes to the Galatians to not grow weary while doing good. Because at the right time, at the right time, we'll see the fruit. The third parable that Jesus offers starts in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and became, becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, 
so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. Number three, the kingdom of God starts small, but it erupts into remarkable and unstoppable growth. Now we have to deal with something here. The mustard seed. Is it actually the smallest seed on earth? No. Was it the smallest seed known to Palestinian farmers in the first century? Yes. Jesus is not making an all-time declarative statement that there will never, ever be a single seed ever found smaller than a mustard seed. He's saying for you people who are hearing this, first century farmer types, you know that this is the smallest seed. Now let's talk about a mustard tree. Now how many of you knew that mustard grew into a tree? So I didn't know that because I hate mustard with a passion. I don't want to know anything about mustard. It is the blood type of Satan for all I'm concerned. Actually, that's true of virtually every single condiment out there, which is also my way of saying, if during potluck today, if you see me avoiding your potato salad or your macaroni salad, it's not you. It is totally me and my own weird hangups with food. I just don't like condiments. But mustard trees is more of a bush than a, than a true tree, but it has some tree-like qualities, and they can grow up to being 12 to 15 feet tall from one tiny seed. Now, have you seen a mustard seed? Like The tip of your finger will just engulf the seed. It, it is so incredibly tiny, yet from that seed, it's possible that this Comparatively speaking, massive tree will grow out of this one tiny thing. You can't stop the growth of God's kingdom. It's been tried throughout history to try and slow the growth of God's kingdom. To attempt to eradicate followers of Jesus from the face of the earth to say that Christianity will never succeed. So now we come to our good pal, Voltaire. Voltaire was a French philosopher, and he was a deist, so he had some appreciation for the supernatural, but not really, but he definitely hated Christianity. He said this of the Bible. The Bible, that is what fools have written, What imbeciles command, what rogues teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. They went on to say, we are living in the twilight of Christianity, 1764. As if that wasn't enough, Voltaire had to keep going. So in 1776 said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Oh, well. Here's what's absolutely fascinating. 58 years after Voltaire died, somebody 
purchased his home and his printing press and began printing Bibles out of his house. <laughs> oh, Voltaire, you learned, unfortunately, the hard way that you cannot stop the kingdom of God. It has been tried and it has failed. We have brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, Afghanistan, and Iran that are worshiping Jesus. Now they're having to do it in some different ways than we're doing it. But the church in each of those three countries is growing. The church in communist-ruled China, despite their many efforts to eradicate Christianity, is growing and blossoming in China. Places that 50 years ago you would never think would ever happen, and it is exploding. You cannot stop the kingdom of God. Once people get a taste of the ruling presence of God over their lives, it becomes addictive. And it takes root and it transforms people from the inside out. And Jesus is letting his disciples know this is how this works. It starts small and it starts quietly, but it grows into something that cannot, cannot be destroyed. It cannot be thwarted. It was later on in the Gospels where Jesus says to Peter that the gates of hell will never prevail against him. And then in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is absolutely fascinating just from the story of what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus on the early edge of things. Peter and the apostles, they're out there talking about Jesus left and right. They're getting arrested. They're singing and laughing about, ha ha, yes, we got arrested for talking about Jesus. Brought in front of the council again. And the council's had enough. And they're ready to be done with them. And there was one man on the council, Gamaliel who stood up and said in Acts chapter 5, verse 38, In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That was written 2,000 years ago. And what do we have today? The explosion of Christianity all around the world. Numbers of people coming to faith in Christ every day in places that you would never think of. You cannot stop the kingdom of God from growing. But it's also true at a micro level. If you are a follower of Jesus, the kingdom of God, this ruling presence of God, guess what? You can't stop that either. He will continue to speak to you, lead you, guide you, challenge you, provoke you, convict you, encourage you, nourish you, bless you. You can't stop him from working. Jesus said of his father, up to this point, my father has always been working and he will always be working. And what's he doing? Reminding you of the truths and the promises of the gospel of Jesus, which he made his entire mission. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And we thank you for these reminders that your kingdom 
is designed to overrule our hearts. And it's a kingdom that isn't tangible with human hands, but it transforms us from the inside out. Father, I pray for those who have not yet trusted in Jesus as their Savior. I pray you would help them to have the honesty to say that it's a useless fight. And that they will see they will not be able to overthrow it. And that they are opposing you. But we thank you that even to those who attempt to overthrow your work, to attempt to oppose you, you still generously hand out forgiveness, grace, and mercy. So, Father, for those who don't yet know you, who have been resisting you, who have kept you at arm's length, I pray today that you would bring them to a place of repentance where they're willing to acknowledge that they are sinners and they need a Savior to rescue them from their sin. And they will experience new life in Christ. Father, I pray for those hearing this who are your followers. It's really easy to, to get discouraged. And it's possible that we're thinking, is this even worth it? 2,000 years of church history says yes. Lord, in the midst of the struggles, the circumstances, I pray for your encouragement. I pray you would strengthen your church to endure, to persevere, to make progress. I pray you would keep them from weariness. I pray you would give them rest. I pray you would nourish their souls and that you would send them back out into a world that desperately needs to hear this message. I pray you would use them to be the light. And that you would allow your light to shine through them. And they are put in a position where they get to answer the question, why are you the way you are? And that they point to the perfect finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for their sins. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.